This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to another edition of the Hound Healer Reports, where I'll unpack natural healing news for you to take even better care of your pets and help them live longer, healthier lives. This is Jody Miller Young. I'm excited and honored to have today's guest with us. His name is Dr. Richard Pitcairn, and he's a seminal veterinary homeopath who's been instrumental in advancing the art of homeopathic medicine in the veterinary community. Now, why is that even important? Well, if you're someone who's been frustrated ever with the results of conventional vet care for your dog or cat, who's found that the medicine given either didn't cure or maybe created additional side effect symptoms or the condition returned as soon as you stopped the medication, then exploring homeopathy is a good option. It's safe, it's gentle, and very effective if done correctly. It's because of this man that you're going to meet today that you have more options to choose from today to find that type of vet. Dr. Pitcairn began as a conventional vet in the 1960s. He explored homeopathy himself in the 70s, adding it to his practice and having tremendous success with it. You'll hear some stories from him along the way. But he also created a postgraduate certification training program in clinical homeopathy for licensed veterinarians. And he's graduated well over 500 of them since it began. In addition, he was a founding member of the Academy of Veterinary Homeopathy, an organization that keeps the community together and the standards high. He's an author with his wife, Susan, of a go-to book, which you should know about, for pet parents who want a natural approach to diet and healing called The Complete Guide to Natural Healing for Dogs and Cats. And it's now in its fourth edition. So we're going to cover two key areas that I hear over and over again from pet parents today. Diet, what should I feed my dog and why? And vaccines, how bad are they really? What does my pet really need? Which ones do they need? So let's not delay any longer. We're going to take a short break from our sponsor, and we'll be right back to meet Dr. Pitcairn. So grab that favorite beverage, get comfortable, and we'll be right back. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There is no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Odyssey, TuneIn, Stitcher, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back. If you've just joined, you're listening to Bark and Swagger on Pet Life Radio. I'm Jody Miller-Young, your host. Dr. Richard Pitcairn is a preeminent expert on natural healing for our pets, and we're very lucky to have him on with us today. If you've ever been frustrated visiting your conventional vet, if you've ever wondered what to feed your dog or cat for optimum and vibrant health and a longer life, 
If you've ever wondered what vaccines your pet really needs and how often they need them, you're in the right place. We'll cover all of that today. Welcome, Dr. Pitcairn. Well, thank you, Joni. Wonderful intro. I hope I can live up to it. <laughs> and more, I'm sure. What I'd like to do today is start with a story, if you'll indulge us. Tell sure. us about your experience with homeopathy or an experience. Well, an interesting story is how I first, what's, what would be the word, became excited, became interested in it was my own experience. Because I was, I will say as a background context, I'd gone through veterinary school and into practice. And then I went to Washington State and I worked on the, I taught at the vet school there on the faculty for a year and did a large animal work. And then I entered graduate school for six years doing work in microbiology. And so I had all that background, but when I came back out into practice, I was still looking for something that would work better than what I had learned, which was limited, of course, as you were saying. And so I was looking at different, I won't go into all the different things I looked at, considered different alternative approaches, but homeopathy, I, I came across a book on treatment of, of dogs with homeopathy, which kind of intrigued me. And so I began to, to, you know how it is when you come across something like that, you start reading a little bit about it and investigating it. And so I was doing that. I didn't really have any confidence in it, but I, I felt it was interesting. I wanted to learn more about it. And um, at that time, I was kind of in between jobs. Part of my disengagement with um, getting somewhat disappointed, I would tend to change sometimes from one job to another. So I was in between jobs. I didn't have much money. And I asked my wife, could, could I buy a remedy kit? She <laughs> <laughs> said, well, if you'll use it. So I bought a $40 remedy kit. And um, then we went, it was a time, I don't remember the year, it was probably around in the latter 70s, uh, went up to Oregon to spend Thanksgiving with my parents from California. And um, I took my remedy kit with me. Well, along the way, I got sick with flu symptoms. When I arrived, I was so sick, I had to go to bed, headache nauseated, fever, you know, the usual thing. Mm. And here it is Thanksgiving. Everybody else is in the other room getting excited, putting out stuff on the table, you know, for Thanksgiving. And here I am lying in bed miserable. And I thought, well, maybe I could try a homeopathic remedy. So I had a little book with me and I started as best I could with my headache, reading the book and found some, you know, guidance, simple, but guidance about remedies to use for this. And I recognized one of them, I thought, that seemed to fit me. So I, it was in my kit, and I took some, and I laid down, and you know, maybe 15 minutes later, I felt better, and within a half hour, I was up at the table, normal. Amazing! It was just amazing. <laughs> I thought, oh my gosh, if it could do that for like me, like magic. <laughs> yeah, it was like magic, and I didn't expect it. Yeah, you know, it wasn't yeah. like I the usual placebo. It's not. I had this anticipation. So anyway, that excited me, and I began to study it more. And as I did and tried best I could to apply it to, to the animals I was treating, I began to see other similar responses like that. Not every time. I was learning it. You know, it took me years to really get fairly good at it. Yes. But you'll see responses that are almost really miraculous when you have acute problems. And by that, I mean like injuries and poisoning and shock and that kind of thing. Yeah. When the right remedy will cause it in a few minutes a dramatic response. So I began to see that in some of the animals. And one of them was this cat that was thought to be terminal, that I, out of not knowing what else to do, you know, try to remedy and it came back to normal. 
that kind of thing, you know. So anyway, that stimulated me to keep going with it. And finally, it just really became my major interest. I just became so engrossed with it, so fascinated, because homeopathy is based on a different view of the world, a different view of reality and of medicine. And so not only do you learn the method, let's say, not only that, but also it opens a window like, what else can I learn about reality? You see, like, oh, I didn't, I, it's like, a, I now realize I didn't fully understand it before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so now what can I learn? So I began to study uh, quantum physics and philosophy and spiritual teachings and all sorts of things, psychology. It opens a big door. Yeah, you. it did. It opened a big door. So it's just been for decades now. I've been doing it for 45 years. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because you and I were communicating outside of this and, um, you said, I haven't used conventional medicine in my practice for 45 years, for 40 years. So you really went all in with homeopathy and other methods of natural healing. And what I find so fascinating is really it's based in quantum energy. It's an energy medicine, and we are yes. all made up of energy and everything, yes. this table I'm at, this computer I'm on, everything is energy right. and everything has its own frequency that it vibrates on. So yes. everything inside of us and inside of our dogs and cats yes. has its own frequency, right? Well, that yes, and you point to a big divide between the conventional system of medicine that we know today and the homeopathic. The conventional system, it, we homeopaths call allopathic. Yes. I'll explain briefly what that means so people understand. Many have probably heard the idea in homeopathy is you use a medicine that has an effect similar to the symptoms that are already present in the person or animal. And so another way of putting it is they use a similar medicine that has a similar effect. And the word similar from the whatever the origin was, well, I don't know if it was Greek or Latin, but the word homeo means same. It's crafting these disease. So homeopathy means using something that's the same as a disease. Yeah. Allopathy, allo means other than. So that means using medicines that are not similar. That's where the two terms come from. Yeah. So anyway, the, the divide between the two uh, is that the allopathic system does not accept the idea behind quantum physics. It's pretty much ignored quantum physics the last hundred years. You know, generally when you talk to people, they don't really accept there's an energy behind our physical form. They think we're physical beings, and that's really all there is, is physical substance. There's so much science. I mean, it's hard to understand that. I know. I know. that, But that's the contrary. You know how it is with so many. I do know how it is. I do. I don't want to go too much over, you know, everyone's head. So, you know, I don't want to get too much deeper because I don't want to lose people. But it's something that if you are at all interested in finding a healing modality that is gentle, safe, and very effective in the hands of someone who knows how to do it properly, mm-hmm. I would strongly urge you to explore homeopathy for your pets and yourself. It's close to 300 years of success stories, lots and lots and lots of cases of successes. And, you know, it's a way to help your pets live longer, healthier lives because you are helping their bodies to heal themselves, which we're all designed to do instead of imposing something, which is what a pharmaceutical does, onto the body and either suppressing or or what we call palliating symptoms. So with that. Um, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll add, Jody, I'll add to that. That was well put, just, just briefly. 
just so people understand, the as you said, the, the conventional system, the allopathic system where we use drugs, the drugs are used to basically calm down or counter the symptom, right? Yes. And the homeopathy, when we use something that creates a similar effect, acts as a stimulus to the system that, you, that is used for recovery for the immune system and the other mechanisms in the body. It actually acts, stimulates the body to heal itself faster. Yes. That's the difference between the two. Yeah, which is huge. It's yes. a chasm of difference. Yeah, yeah. So I encourage it. And with that, I'm not going to browbeat anybody. Um, I'm passionate <laughs> about it. I've had successes with it. And it's, to me, a very, very exciting, elegant form of medicine. But there are two main issues that I want to talk with you about today, Dr. Pitcairn, that come up over and over and over again. And I'm sure that you experienced the same thing in your practice all those years. And that is really talking about diet. You know, what should I feed? You know, it's a much bigger question today. And you and I have been talking about this. Can you unpack that for us a little bit and sort of lay the groundwork and help pet parents understand why it's a bigger question and issue today? Okay. Let me, let me give you a context first. There's two ways of looking at this question of what's the best way to maintain the health of your animal, right? The conventional way tends to view what you are as a physical being as something that's not that strong or effective, you know, it needs help, it breaks down easily, wears out, and so on. So it's a view of, shall we say, not a high level of confidence in the natural abilities of healing that the body has. The other view that we're talking about, that's in homeopathy and other alternative systems, is the opposite, which is that we say that the body, the natural state is one of health. That's what that's our birthright. That's the way we are supposed to be, if you will, within a state of health. And so it's not like we're going to now take over. We rather respect the body's ability to maintain itself. And we just then have the attitude more of uh, looking to see what it is we can keep from disturbing it or damaging it, not interfering with it. Does that make sense? That's yes, it makes news. total sense. Yeah. So go back to your question about diet. And so from coming from that perspective, then what we want to do in looking at diet is we want to use food that, of course, is nourishing, that's understood, but also food that will not in any way interfere with or compromise the natural health of the body. Right. All right. So those are the concerns in today's world, unfortunately, is we have to consider that. Now, mind you, maybe 100 years ago or more, I'm not sure the, the, the dates, but say 100 years ago, there was no such thing as organic food because all food was organic, right? Yep. But with our modern development of, of our cultural life, we have learned how to use chemistry and other means to alter food. And so now we have the whole question of GMO and herbicides that are being used and different kinds of substances that are that are added to food, uh, you know, additives when the food is made, <laughs> yes. you know, packaged or whatever. And so it's much more complicated than it used to be. So now we are in the position that we're talking about, where I'm coming from as, a, as an alternative practitioner and wanting to be sure what, we don't use anything that in any way will compromise health, then we have to look at that consideration. Is there anything in the food itself which can be a, a stress or cause damage or interfere with the normal functioning of the body. Especially over time, because remember, we're feeding our animals, most of us twice a day, every day ongoing, right? 
Yes, yes. So it can happen, you know, that in my experience, speaking from my experience with this and understanding of it, it's not unusual that an animal is brought to me with with what we call a chronic disease. And that chronic disease, I feel, I recognize is caused by the food being eaten. You know, that that, we have to stop that because they're being, in a sense, poisoned by it. Poison's a strong word. So that sounds like arsenic, but (laughs) but poisoned in the sense that it's actually interfering with their normal health function. And it doesn't make any sense to me that if that's what's being done with this animal, being fed that way, to add some drugs to the whole story, but continue to feed this food that's causing the problem. It just doesn't make logical sense. Right. So the first thing I would have them do is change the diet, which is what a lot of the emphasis on our book that you mentioned, it's gone through four editions and it's changed as as we've gone through, as as our society has changed and this whole problem of continued buildup of chemicals in the food and environment, we've had to alter our recipes to compensate for that. Well, this is the big thing, Dr. Pitcairn. This is the real eye-opener. And it was for me as someone who has been promoting raw feeding and who, based on what I've been told from people that I view as experts and my experience with feeding raw to my dogs, which is a bridge for a lot of pet parents anyway, that now, based on the world that we're living in and what we've done to it, that there are some big challenges with feeding raw too. And I'd love for you to explain that to my listeners. Yeah, it's a it's a good question. And it's a big topic. Um, yeah. A big factor is the way food is grown now. Understandably, farmers have learned how to use fertilizers and other products to make foods grow rapidly. And then the genetically modified is another one, but and then they're usually harvested before they're completely mature, especially if it's vegetables and fruits and certain things like that. As you know, you go to the market and and you you look at a plum and it's hard as a rock. Yeah, you know, well they do that so it's not damaged in transit. The problem is the nutritional value has decreased over the years because of that. Like there have been studies to show that genetically modified foods don't have the same nutrients in them as they did before. So that's important to know, first of all, because you're going to need so much. It's not like you can now stuff yourself with twice as much to get the nutrients, or maybe the nutrients aren't even in there that were there before, you see. So that's one thing. Uh, The other important part of it is the chemicals that are accumulating in food, because uh, with time, our society, our government, and I'm speaking in the, I'm most familiar with what the situation is in the US. I don't know about other countries, maybe are, you know, have different rules, I'm not sure. But in this country, synthetic chemicals that have been created, and when I say synthetic, you know, ones that you buy to put on your your lawn or clean your house with or take as medicines or whatever it is, when I say synthetic, you understand that means they're new. They never existed on planet Earth before. Created in a lab. In a lab. But I mean, our bodies don't have never seen them before. Well, our government has approved the use of 100,000 synthetic chemicals, which is shocking. 100,000. Very very shocking. And then we we sort of assume, I think most of us, that, that, that they're safe as established. But when you look into it, you find out that over 95% of them have never been tested for health effects. So it's just thrown out there blindly. We really don't know what the effects are over time at all. We don't know. Yeah. And, the, and the odd thing is, that's chilling. The odd thing is, is that the rules are 
that they don't have to test what the effect is once it's used and it goes into the environment. Isn't that odd? It's very odd. So the problem is that these chemicals are accumulating in the food and in the water, in the soil, in the air. I mean, they, they're given off. And uh, like for a exa quick example, one of the most common ones you find in, in uh, people, and especially in children, is fire, fire retardant chemicals that are in uh, furniture and bedding and so on. And fire retardant chemicals are given off into the air and they blow across the continent and the children with the highest levels in their bodies are in Alaska. Oh, my God. Isn't that odd? Yes. But see, well, the thing is, what I'm pointing to is these chemicals now are spreading all over the place. And they're yeah, in you the, can't in get the, away from it. No. And when you say found in the bodies of children, these are tests that have actually been done, blood and urine or something like that? Yeah. Of children of most, and then also of animals? Sure, sure. Telling us. Of, yeah, children and animals. That, they're one of the most... Um, common ones where they evaluate this in children is when they're born, they take some of the blood from the umbilical cord, and they have found that the blood from the baby, on average, has over 300 chemicals in their bodies. That are babies oh born God. today have over 300 chemicals in their oh bodies, my God. some of which are carcinogens, yeah, and some of which interfere with development. Oh, wow. So, you know, I, I don't dare go into this whole question of gender controversy. But, you know, if your child is taking substances and interfere with development, how do we know that those aren't factors? We see? don't. We really don't know what the effects are. No. And it's the so same, same thing in our pets. Same, same thing. In dogs and These cats. same they tests have, have been done. They haven't done as many in dogs and cats because there isn't the money there. Sure. But, but they have done it. There are studies that have come out in the last few years, and they find just as many or more chemicals in dogs and cats as there are in children or people. Where can people find these things if they wanted to do some research on their own? Where have you been able to Oh, gosh. Them? Yeah. Well, different journals. You know, I go online and I search uh, for those kind of topics. You know, um, the Environmental Working Group is one that I know uh, reported this study on dogs and cats. So look on that, that group online, Environmental Working Group, EWG. Great. Might be EWG.com. I don't remember the the address, but you can find it, Environmental Working Group. And they have a they have a, a, a good study that goes into the details. Wonderful. So yeah, so the we need to have we don't have the work to know. But anyway, what I'm saying is these chemicals are an animal. Well the other thing to bring into this is uh, a question of dose. How much of the chemical if you're getting hundreds of chemicals in your body, then the amount you're getting is very important, isn't it? Because yes. that's how we determine the effect. And how of the drug. far above in the ones that we do know is? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I wouldn't. I dare to use the word safe, even relatively safe. But you, you get the drift. Yeah. So the the problem is, I mean, not. I shouldn't say the problem. The what has to be understood about it is that the chemicals that are in the environment, many of them end up in, taken up by plants that are feeding on the soil and water, of course. As plants, not any particular kind of plant, plants everywhere across the whole continent, okay? Now, when you have livestock feeding on the plants, they're taking in the chemicals as well. Correct. Right? Yeah. Now, the difference is the plant grows up and it might has, you know, so let's say in its lifetime, it accumulates one drop of chemicals just to make up a, an amount, okay? The cow or, or the lamb or whatever it is eating these plants day after day after day accumulates in their bodies a million drops. See, it builds up in their tissues and they can't get rid of it because it's synthetic and they bodies and it's don't stored. know how to do it. 
it's, it's stored, stored in there and there in those tissues. Yeah. And unfortunately, where it's stored is in the meat, meat in the fat. So oh. what it comes down to is if you're feeding your dog and cat very much meat, you're feeding them a lot of chemicals because they're one step above. All right. So so again, quickly, you have the plant, the cow is eating plants day after day for months and months. The cow is killed, fed to the dog or cat that's eating the cow day after day after day for weeks. They get the highest amount. Yep. And the amounts they get is quite significant. Yes. So what possible solution is there? The only one I could come up with is feed less of the meat, you know? So a more plant-based diet like they're yeah. recommending for us humans. Yeah, because then at least you're going to have much smaller dose. You're going to have 1% of the dose that you have otherwise. So this, this building up of the, the substances in the food like that is called a food chain. People have heard that term or, or it's called bioaccumulation. Those are the terms that are used. If anybody wants to look that up online, bio, yeah. B-I-O accumulation or food chain. Thank you, doctor. Something that may come up in the minds of some listeners is, well, what if I buy meat for my dog or cat that is from a place that doesn't use herbicides or pesticides, that doesn't use antibiotics or hormones or any drugs in the animals, then shouldn't that be okay? That's better, of course, because you're not getting those drugs. But unfortunately, all the animals, even on natural pastures without drugs, are picking up the chemicals from the environment. That's been shown. The rain that falls. Yeah, they're even reporting now of significant health effects in wild animals like antelope. Wow. wow. Yeah. So the rain that falls, a stream yeah. that might be nearby, the air they're breathing, we can't get away from it. No. Yeah, it's 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 so sad, really, when you think about it. Yeah, it's very much a, a real challenge to our society. A huge with. challenge, a huge challenge. And you, in your book, in this fourth edition that you and Susan came out with, I believe in 2017, you talk about this and you have recipes. Yes. Yeah? So we changed that. We rewrote about half the book, this last edition. And we minimize the use of animal products and we emphasize balanced nutritional recipes, plant-based. And a lot of people, of course, as you understand, will resist that because they don't think that's what should be fed. But actually, I can assure you from my experience, they're much healthier. And you'll see animals, sometimes that alone will solve these problems. Yeah. When I had my practice that, that did this kind of work, we would have a waiting list because I was busy and we would send recipes to people that were on the waiting list. And sometimes when we contact them later, it'd say, oh, my animal's fine now. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's diet. amazing. That is amazing. <laughs> Are there studies that show a difference in longevity between animals fed on a meat-based, animal protein-based diet and those fed on a vegan-type diet? There are no studies that I know of. Okay. study would be a large number of carefully compared. No, but there are anecdotal. Okay. There are a number of, of animals. We have mentioned one in our book. Um, I think his name, dog was named Bramble or Bramby or something like that in England. Mm -hmm. It was on a vegan diet all his life and lived to be 27, which is oh remarkable. Yeah. Whoever hears of that. So, so I've, I know of a number of animals that lived to be quite, a, quite, much, quite old compared to what ordinarily you would expect on that kind of diet. So I really, I really encourage people to consider it, open their mind to consider it, because I find that they're health improves. We're removing something that's affecting them in a negative way. Yeah. I mean, we all handle. love our babies so much. Yeah. We, we want to do everything we can for them. And, and it's a process too, right? So maybe it's lessening the amount of meat 
and introducing more vegetables in a palatable way. So maybe these recipes, because they're tried and true for you. Yes. And many others. No problem at dogs accepting them. They love them right away. Okay. So that's something interesting to check out. Yeah. Cats are more of a challenge. It has to be more Yeah. Gradual. Yes. Yes. We're going to take a little bit of a break from our sponsor, which we need to do. But what I will say is, if you think you've gotten some eye-opening and valuable information thus far, we're not done yet. When we return, Dr. Pitcairn is going to tell you the real scoop on vaccines, what your pet needs, how often. So you're armed with reliable information from a well-respected vet when you need to talk to your vet. So refresh that favorite beverage, get cozy, and we'll be right back. Molly, here's your dinner. <laughs> Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your cat tree tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets on Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back. If you've just joined, I'm Jody Miller Young. We're here today with Dr. Richard Pitcairn, a seminal homeopathic veterinarian who's been at the forefront of getting homeopathy and natural healing for animals out into the world. We have tackled, that's a very big and ambitious word, maybe we have discussed the newest information on diet and how that affects our animals, our pets. Now we're going to talk about vaccines because vaccines are a huge issue, as you know, Dr. Pitcairn, for pet parents. In addition to wanting to do the right thing for their pets and their health, there are also laws to comply with regarding, you know, rabies vaccines, at least. Can you give listeners some background on why and when revaccines from a natural doctor's purview? Yeah, another big topic, isn't it? <laughs> it is. We're tackling the big ones and we only have a certain amount of time, so we can't really go deep, but okay. we can at least open the door for people to explore more. Yeah, this is a hard one for me to accept. I, well, when I went through, I mentioned earlier, I went through my part, my training before I got into alternatives. I did a PhD in the Department of Microbiology, and my focus was to study the immune system and vaccines and viruses. I grew viruses in labs for years. You know, that was what I came out with. And I I had been taught when I went through vet school, the vaccines were the most wonderful thing, you know, one of the greatest advances in medicine. But then when I go through my postgraduate training, then I started to find out that wasn't quite true. <laughs> the vaccines were more complex than that. And then yeah. it was even possible that you could, I mean, this was shocking to me at the time I learned it. This is back in the 70s, mind you, that you could produce a vaccine. And uh, let me let me back up a little bit. 
The idea of a vaccine is that if you have a virus or a bacteria, usually what you do is you take, you isolate it, say from a person, it'd be the same with an animal, say from a person, and you put it in, grow it in something else, like you grow it in a monkey or a mouse or something. And that's not always easy to do, but you can figure out how to do it and make the virus, say, grow in that animal. Well, what happens is the virus or the bacteria is a living being just like we are. So it adapts to that new being that it's now growing in and gets good at it. Now, if you harvest it from that one it's growing in now and put it back in the human, it doesn't cause so much disease because it's not adapted to the human yet. Does that make sense? It does. That's called modified live virus. Okay. So so um, that's the idea behind it. Well, it turned out I found that when that's done, and then when you modified the virus or the bacteria, that you then test it in animals to see if it works. And you find that, yes, now they produce antibodies and all this other stuff. It's wonderful. But then you find out not only do they do that, but now they're more susceptible to disease. Now, they not only produce antibodies, but now they die more readily when they're infected with the disease. Why? Well, it's not really clear. At least it wasn't clear at that time. But you have to test it. There's no way to tell ahead of time what the effect's going to be. You see, that's what's happening in today's world with the so-called vaccine going out. You know, it was not really tested. So anyway, I learned these things and it was really shocking to me. But even so, I came out of back into practice and I studied homeopathy. In the homeopathic study, I began to learn there were questions about the use of vaccines. There was a doctor in England who was uh, back in the early 1900s, J. Compton Burnett was his name, the first described ill health following smallpox vaccine. That was new. Nobody had realized that before. He called it vaccinosis. Some of you may have heard that term. Yes. And he showed, he described what it looked like, how people got sick from the vaccine. Well, so just to quickly summarize, this study has grown to look at other vaccines and their effects in homeopathy, you know, by studying carefully what happens with people and animals after they're vaccinated. Same thing happens in animals. And um, there is a general, I'll give you a, there's a general pattern of health problems that follow vaccination as understood from the homeopathic system. They've learned over decades by studying the cases. The effect of vaccines, because you're injecting some kind of biological material, there's a tendency towards immune problems such as allergies. There's a tendency towards excessive tissue growth, so the direction towards tumors and cancers. And there's also a problem, a tendency to be more susceptible to fungal diseases, fungus. So that's surprising. Who would have thought that? But that's what we learned in homeopathy now. And that's what you'll see in animals that are vaccinated. If Not all animals get the vaccine necessarily get sick from it. But if they do get sick from it, they'll usually get sick in the direction of developing allergies or tumors or something along that line. And have you seen that a lot in practice? Yeah, I began finally, reluctantly began. To like maybe if people it. came to you from conventional vet practices where they their dogs were vaccinated or puppy vaccines. Well, yes, I saw I saw that animals brought to me, but where I finally began to recognize it was where I had taken on animals that were that had health, persistent health problems. I was treating with homeopathy. I was improving the diet, and they were getting better and better. And then they get a vaccine and they crash. Yeah. I thought, oh my god, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't believe it at first. It took a while. But then I began to see how, yes, indeed, the vaccine was causing problems. And then you look at what are the details. When the animal crashes, well, what what happens to it? Well, that could be then when the allergy begins, or that's when the tumor grows. Yes. So I began, yes, I began to see it, unfortunately. So (laughs) what would you 
obviously you don't recommend vaccinating. What would you recommend? It's not that we have to be practical, but I say really reduce the number. Okay. So let's talk specifics because that's what we get asked all the time. You've got the puppy vaccines, okay? And that's like the combo for parvo distemper, et cetera, and so forth, and then the rabies. And it's my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that in most dogs, that parvo distemper combo lasts a lifetime. Yeah, if they're a normal, healthy animal and they develop an immune reaction to the vaccine, it's lifelong. Okay. If it's not, if it's not lifelong, if it's only partial or lasts a short time, it's not really a true vaccine. Okay. It's so not that's really working. Really, that's really good to know. Yeah. So pet parents listening, that puppy vaccine for distemper, parvo, et cetera, and so forth should give immunity for a lifetime. For a lifetime. And you can always check that with a titer test, right? You could. Dr. Pitcairn, if you wanted to a few right, years down the right. line. Yeah, you could. The, the one, one thing I'll just mention is if people listening have the opportunity to work with a veterinarian that's trained in homeopathy, yeah. there is the alternative of not getting the vaccines. Because the other way you can go is you work to make your animal very healthy so it doesn't get sick, first yeah. of all, number one. Yes. Or if it does get sick, it develops a, a quick recovery with homeopathic treatment. That's very practical. That's what I used to do in my practice. Makes a lot of sense. The problem is with rabies. That's what I was going. Yeah, that was my next. Yeah. The requirement for rabies vaccine is not from the veterinary profession. It's from the human medical profession. So we can't control it. We veterinarians. They require it. They will not accept a titer. I know. Um, if you are avoid, some people avoid getting the rabies vaccine, which we could talk about the symptoms that follow that in a moment, if you like. Mm-hmm. The problem, though, is if you do avoid getting the rabies vaccine, therefore you, need, you either don't get a license or you find some way around it. The problem is if your dog, let's say, bites or scratches somebody and that person reports you, ordinarily, if your animal is vaccinated, they put it in quarantine. I used to work in SPCA where we did this. We monitored for two weeks. We monitored these dogs there in quarantine to see if they got sick. Yeah. If your dog's not vaccinated, they take it and immediately kill it and cut its head open and look at its brain to see if Ugh. it has rabies. Wow. So that's the risk. Yeah. And that is a big risk. And that's scary for, for pet parents, for it sure. Is. So there are a number of symptoms that follow rabies. And I want to emphasize not every dog that gets rabies gets necessarily symptoms. They have to be susceptible, just like any disease. Mm-hmm. But it's more likely when the vaccines are given together. The immune system evolved naturally over millions of years to deal with diseases. Of course, it's a very, very elegant, sophisticated system that would be, it's just amazing to talk about, which we don't have time for. But the immune system evolved to handle infections occurring naturally, mm-hmm. which is almost always one infection at a time. When you combine vaccines, it's something the immune system has a lot of trouble handling. And that's when it gets disturbed and causes autoimmunity and problems like that. So anyway, rabies vaccine, the most common effect of it, as far as any health changes, are behavioral. And they develop behaviors that are like the dogs with rabies. Now, they don't have rabies. I'm not saying that. Yes. They don't have the virus yes. for the vaccine. But they develop the behavior. And That's one of, for, really interesting. Yeah. And one of the behaviors, for example, is the dogs with rabies have an incredible desire to escape. 
That's, that's the way they behave, wolves or dogs or whatever. It's very difficult to confine them. So here you have a dog that's been, your dog has been just fine, acting very normal as far as dogs go. Gets the rabies vaccine and now you cannot keep it in your yard. Mm -hmm. It will escape no matter what you do. That's a symptom of rabies vaccination. Very interesting. Another one is they react intensely to any kind of restraint. And um, we used to get them into the clinic sometimes where they, you couldn't touch them or approach them. They were so aggressive. And we would put, we had a thing, I don't know what you call it. It was a stick with a noose around it that you put around their neck to guide them into the room. You know, or in, yeah, that's the only way you could handle them. Otherwise, they would hurt you. Yeah. And some of them would just go crazy. They just go berserkle and start to throw themselves around and bite the wood and try to, you know. Oh, my God. Yeah, so that's very typical of rabies also. What about behavior issues with aggression that are not so off of the charts like that, but are still reactionary behaviors? They tend to become very suspicious, whereas before they might have been very friendly and wagging their tail. Now, somebody new comes along and they slink away, they growl, you know, maybe they get it. Or if you approach, sometimes another one could be if you approach them and they don't expect it, they turn and bite. Yep. Much more tendency to bite people. Mm -hmm. before because that's rabies. Does that make sense? It makes so much sense. And for me and maybe other pet parents listening, it could ring a bell and say, oh my God, could that yeah. be why my dog is doing X? Right. And you see what happens is when people when that happens, people say, oh, you have to get training. And that's not it at all. So what can you do? Can homeopathy help with that? Yes. Yes. It can completely eliminate all of that. Very interesting. And it isn't complicated necessarily. I mean, if the dog doesn't have or, or cat doesn't have other problems, other health problems, it's relatively simple in a sense, because you hear, here you have like the desire to escape or whatever. And there are just a few remedies that are appropriate for treating this condition after vac the vaccine. And the homeopathic veterinarian knows how to recognize that, gives it. It could be one dose and they're fine after that. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. Now, if you have to get your dogs vaccinated with rabies because of the law and because you want to be protected I don't know if it's required. You can get a one year, you can get a three year. I'd probably get three just to, to so, get so, a three so year. So you have a longer period of time between yeah, vaccinations. Yeah. And then whatever may come up after that, if you're really being an observant pet parent, you can then handle that homeopathically every three years, right? Yeah. So, so get the, get the rabies vaccine by itself, not mixed with the other ones. Right. And as far as other ones go, get as few together as possible Yeah, if you can. So now you can ask for that. Some veterinarians won't cooperate. But for example, you can, it is possible if you have a young dog and you, want, and you do want to vaccinate it for distemper, let's say. Mm -hmm. It's possible to buy just the va distemper vaccine alone. And ask your veterinarian to do yeah, that but you, but you have to pay for a whole box because most veterinarians won't use it after that. Got you. But yeah, so get it by itself. Uh, it's really smart if you can do so to set up an arrangement with a homeopathic veterinarian before the vaccine. So they're there available to you to evaluate the changes that occur. And I don't mean the changes occur right away. See, this is another thing to understand. Vaccine effects are not necessarily immediate. Correct. You know, like like in our, our current situation where vaccines are causing problems and people, they limit the, the CDC or whatever, whatever the group is that's in charge, the government's in charge of evaluating vaccine reactions. They'll sometimes limit it to has to occur within three days. But vaccine right. effects can occur. You see, it might, the dog might not show any changes for a month or two. It's not immediate. So anyway, if you have a homeopathic veterinarian to work with, then you can have them informed. Or if there's a change, have them come or go take the animal in to evaluate and, and get appropriate treatment. 
And if there is no change, you're fine. You're lucky. Yeah. Yeah. That is amazing advice. You are the first veterinarian that I've spoken with that has broken vaccines down like this with behavior issues. And I can't tell you how many pet parents this is, you know, may resonate with because they just can't solve the behavior issue. Yes. Yeah. And uh, behavior can be, sometimes it's very, it can be very difficult behavior. It can be dangerous too. Yeah. You know, yeah, it can be, uh, as you know, dogs can attack people. And, and the thing is, see, their way to understand it from a homeopathic perspective is that they're not getting the virus per se. They're getting the energy of the disease and it affects them, affects them biologically, affects them energetically. So we're separating the way we're separating the two by developing the virus vaccine. We're physically changing it, but we haven't changed the energy behind it. Yeah. That makes sense. It does. It's really interesting and makes total sense because if you understand that we're all energy and this whole quantum energy, you know, paradigm, then yeah, why wouldn't that be a possibility? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, key takeaways from the interview today food. We have to be careful with feeding meat. Mm-hmm. We have to be willing to do some research and maybe lessen the meat intake, if not eliminate it entirely and up the vegetable intake. And whatever preconceived notions pet parents may have about, oh, my dog needs meat, must eat meat. They're not going to be able to have strong bones, strong muscles, the right nutrients if they don't eat meat. Can you yeah. say a quick word on that? Yeah, uh, I, that, that is the story I heard too in school. You know, that's what I thought. It turns out it's not quite uh, accurate in the sense that biologists consider wolves, for example, not to be strict carnivores. They're called omnivores. They, they eat vegetable matter and other things too. But more importantly is the dogs being domesticated from wolves. They were fed for centuries on primarily non-meat diets, and they've done well in Europe and other places. There's records of that. With their oh. beans and other things. Yeah. If you go wow. study what they were fed in England a century ago, they didn't get much meat. Too expensive. <laughs> but what's, what I was going to mention is there was a study that came out a few years ago where a scientist did a DNA sequencing of dog DNA compared to wolves. And interestingly, they found that dogs now have the same active genes that people do to digest grains and vegetables and sugars and starches and everything. They can eat the same foods people eat and, and deal with them just fine. Isn't so that this interesting? whole thing about grain-free diets and this and that, it's more space on marketing, more marketing like yeah. more space on the shelves yeah. Yeah. for a manufacturer. There's no, to, there's no reason to avoid grains at all in animals uh, other than you don't want Roundup in it. <laughs> yeah, well, there's that too. Okay, so that's a great takeaway about food and about vaccines. Less is more, and there are ways to mitigate, uh, certainly homeopathically. Yes. And then the whole behavior issue. Have the attitude. I'm telling people here that are listening. Have the attitude your animal is basically healthy. That's its default state. Keep your eyes open to anything that might interfere with that. That's the approach to use. Perfect. Perfect. This has been so valuable. Can you please tell people where they can find more information on you and these types of things and your book? Yeah, uh, my website is a a source of some information. It's drpitcairn.com and it's spelled just D-R-Pitcairn is one word. Pitcairn is P-I-T-C-A-I-R-N. 
So drpitcairn.com. And when you go there, then there is stuff about my background, uh, somewhat about training programs we have, some about homeopathy. I have some videos there. I have links to videos that are off-site. And also, I think I have some one we did with Karen Becker. It's interesting. Then, you know uh, then there's also uh, up on the top of the window where the menus are, you'll see the word referrals. And if you click on that, there are some sub-menus. One of them is, it says referrals again. And if you go to that page, you can now search by state for veterinarians that have trained in our program that are offering to take clients. It's not a complete list. Some veterinarians didn't want to be listed. So sometimes there are other ones in their state that aren't there. But mm -hmm. it is helpful for a lot of people to see state by state where they can find a veterinarian. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's very helpful. Thank you yeah. so much, Dr. Pitcairn, for spending time with us today and sure. teaching us and giving us all of this very, very valuable information. You're welcome. Thank you for your interest. Oh, please. And thank you all for listening. Thanks to our producer, Mark Winter. Mark, you make us sound so good. We love you for that. <laughs> Join me next time to learn about cutting-edge products and technologies to help naturally heal our pets. We as pet parents have so many more options today to avoid the imbalances and side effects pharmaceuticals cause when we can. So until next time, this is Jody Miller-Young of the Hound Healer Reports signing out to their health. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.